For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening is The Bearing of Sins. The Bearing of Sins. And you may have seen that phrase as we were reading along in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says in verse 24, this, this verse, verse 24, that is the subject under consideration this evening. It says, and he himself, that is Jesus Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. You were healed. So the subject that we're considering, essentially, is substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, the bearing of sins by the person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now, in order to understand this text, we need to understand the context that it comes in. First Peter is a book really about uh, gospel living, holiness, in the context of being persecuted. In the context of being persecuted. He writes this book to those who are being persecuted. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is the author, Peter, to, he's about to disclose to us who the audience is to whom he's writing, to those who reside as aliens, and not the kind that abduct people, <laughs> the kind that are foreign, that live in another land. Why do they reside as aliens? Verse 1, because they are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are scattered. Why, why are these people being scattered? Why are they being scattered? Because they're being persecuted. This is, he, Peter is writing to the Jewish diaspora. These are Jews who have converted to Christianity and they are being persecuted by the Jews and they are scattered as a result of that. So he is, he is really writing to a persecuted people and he is giving them instruction on how they are to live their life in light of this persecution. So you can see it in chapter 2 down at verse 11. He refers to them again as aliens. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. In other words, you need to live holy even when you're being persecuted. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the nations. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you, these are people who are being slandered, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So you can see in the context of First Peter, you have a people who are being persecuted, they're being scattered throughout the lands, and Peter is urging them, you need to live holy so that in the thing in which these people are slandering you before your authorities, you may be found to be righteous and holy. And yet, even though you are righteous and holy, you, you can be persecuted and you can be punished unjustly. So he goes on. It says in verse 19, For this finds favor. If 
For the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Nobody's going to commend you for being patient when you are suffering because you did something wrong. Nobody's going to commend you for that. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why? Why does that find favor with God? Well, here we come to our text this evening. Verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. So, the context of verses 21 through 25, and specifically the context of our text this evening, verse 24, is Jesus Christ suffering from a human's perspective unjustly and being your example to follow. So verse 24, what we are going to be discussing, is the gospel. He makes a, an aside to the gospel while he's discussing the unjust sufferings of Jesus Christ. He refers to uh, the behind-the-scenes perspective of Christ's suffering, which was just. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. And he himself, Jesus Christ, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Did he really suffer unjustly? He bore our sins. What does that mean? Well, we're going to break down this text, verse 24, into three points. Point number one, we will consider it as the fact of Christ bearing our sins. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What does that mean? The fact of Christ bearing our sins. Point number two will be the purpose of Christ bearing our sins. Where it reads, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. And point number three, the result of Christ bearing our sins, by his wound, you were healed. So point number one, the fact of Christ bearing our sins. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Notice that little phrase there, our sins. You may notice, if you've been coming here for any length of time, that here at this church, we speak quite frequently on the subject of sin, on the subject of obedience. Why do we do that? It's because in this book, you will not find one epistle. You will not find one gospel. You will not find one historical narrative that does not in one way or another speak about sin and obedience to Jesus Christ. Um, We are created in the image of God, and by virtue of what we are, we are required to obey him and to bear his image, to represent his moral character. So here at this church, we speak about sin a lot because we don't measure up to that image. We don't measure up to that image. And there's more to that. There's more to that. Why is sin such a serious thing in the Bible? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. In our culture, um, with our American Christianity, um, we don't think seriously about sin because we don't see it in light of who God is. God is holy. He is our creator. There is a great, infinite gap between the creature and the creator. And there is an infinite gap between the moral character of God 
and the moral character of his creatures. You see, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned in the garden, a corrupt nature was passed down to his progeny. And we received a a sinful disposition at birth. And when we look at one another, we all have a corrupt nature. And so the drunkard looks at the adulterer and he says, I'm not as bad as that guy. And the adulterer looks at the wife abuser and he says, I'm not as bad as that guy. And the wife abuser, he looks at the drunkard and he says, I'm not as bad as that guy. We compare ourselves with one another. But when you stop looking here and you start looking there, you realize the seriousness of your sin. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. And Jesus, he spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. And the way that he described this place of judgment and wrath was that it was a place of fire and flames, an unquenchable flame, a place where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. It is called a place of outer darkness. It is called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is called a place of torment and agony. It is called a place of torture in Matthew chapter 18. It is called a place of justice. And it is called a place where um, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It is described as an eternal abode. A place where you will be away from the presence of the Lord. God is not unjust. We don't think rightly. That's our problem. God is not an unjust God. He gives to each person according to what they have done. The nature of God's justice is that he gives according to those who have done wrong, calamity, and those who have done right, salvation, justice, um, or reward. Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, God looks at the heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Here it is. Here's the justice of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. It's the doctrine of retributive justice. God gives to each person according to what they deserve. And hell, hell is a place Um, where those who belong there go. It's a place where those who belong there go. God gives to each person according to what they've done. But notice in our text, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that it says, he bore our sins, plural, plural. Why does it say he bore our sins, plural, and not our sins, singular? There are places where it says he bore our sin in general, But here, it says he bore our sins, plural. God, his justice is meticulous and granular. Every sin will be punished. We forget. We forget our sins. We we even forget the sins of others. God does not forget. God remembers everything. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is eternal. He does not experience a succession of moments. So every sin is is as though it is before his face. He knows. He knows, my friend. God remembers every sin. And here, in verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It says that 
because the nature of the atonement is that Jesus Christ on the, on the cross substituted for individual sins particularly. Every sin particularly. In Mark, I believe, chapter 4, Jesus said, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. In other words, anyone who is my own, anyone who will be, who will be with me in paradise on the last day, all of their sins shall be forgiven. And if you harmonize that with this text here, where it says he bore our sins in his body on the cross, what it means is that all of your sins, particularly if you are in Christ, are punished in him. When you don't even remember them, you can't measure them. And Jesus Christ bore something that to us is immeasurable. Do you see the seriousness of the subject that is under consideration this evening? This evening we are speaking about a matter of heaven and hell. Life and death. There is no subject that is more significant or more important than your eternal destiny and the state, the current state of your soul. Who will bear your sins? That's what we're asking. Who will bear your sins? Let's continue to look at verse 24 here. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. That's really what the apostle here is is uh, alluding to. He doesn't uh, quote it outright, but he alludes to Isaiah 53, and you'll see that. You'll see that. Isaiah 53, and we are going to consider what it means to bear sins. What, what, does, he, what does he mean by that? Another way of saying that is that he carries, he carries them. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. What's he talking about? He's talking about when the suffering servant dies on the cross, when the Messiah is being crucified. That's, that's the situation that he's speaking to right now. It says he bore our sins, he carried our sorrows. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, in other words, without the light of special revelation in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, looking upon the cross, according to our natural wisdom, we might think, this man is cursed of God. He's hanging on a tree. He has sinned. He is smitten, stricken, and afflicted because he sinned. This is his fault that he's there. That's what Isaiah is saying. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But if you were saying that, would you be looking at the cross correctly? No. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Brothers, have we forgotten the gospel? Are we thinking of it enough are we thinking of it regularly? Is this our daily meditation? Are these the things that we consider when we sin against God, when we violate his statutes? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And here it is. By his scourging, we are healed. 
So what happened on the cross? Did God send Jesus Christ specifically and only exclusively to be a demonstration of his love, a display of his love? I love you, so I'm going to send my son to die on the cross. And that's, that's the only motivation that I have. Is that why? Is that exclusively why? You could ask, how is his death on the cross a display of love? And it would get deeper than that, right? How is Jesus' death on the cross a display of love? It is specifically because he bore our sins in his body upon the cross. There was a certificate of debt. There is a certificate of debt consisting of decrees which are hostile against you according to your natural man. And what Jesus Christ, brother, sister, what Jesus Christ did on the cross was he took that certificate of debt and he placed it on his chest and he nailed it to the cross. And so all of its hostile decrees are no longer against you, they're against him. It wasn't his fault that he died on the cross, it was your fault. And it was my fault if we were in Christ. Yes, he did it voluntarily. What I'm saying is you are to blame. And I am to blame for his death. This is a very serious subject that we're talking about. And it's really, quite honestly, it's hard to contain myself. Um, because Christians aren't, um, becoming a Christian isn't about being more holy in and of itself. Becoming a Christian is, is, is about the fact that you are not worthy to stand in God's presence and the place where you belong is a place where you are not at right now. Hell, that's where you belong. But you didn't go there because someone who didn't belong there went there for you if you're in Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He bore your sin in his body on the cross. Lastly, from, from verse 24a, the last thing that I want to consider is the identity of the sin bearer. It says, verse 24, he himself. Why does it use that reflexive pronoun, himself? Why? It is to place stress, emphasis, prominence on the fact of the identity of the sin bearer. There's a certain emphasis that Peter wants to place on that. Do you know why? It is not only because he was innocent. It is because he was innocent, but it is because God himself took upon himself a human nature to suffer in your stead. It is because of the honor that is due to the person of Jesus Christ that he uses this reflexive pronoun. He himself bore our sins. He didn't, we would think so seriously of this issue if a friend died for us, if a friend took a bullet for us, if a family member died in our place. But a family member, a friend did not die in our place. God took upon himself the form of a servant and he died in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Look with me. Point number two, the purpose of Christ bearing our sins. Why? Why did Jesus Christ bear our sins? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or you could say, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. So why did Jesus do it? Why did he come to die on the cross and to raise again from the dead? He did it so that you could have newness of life. What does that imply? What does that imply? It, it implies that there was a time. That there was a time when you were not living. 
There was a time when you were dead in sin. Or you could say another way, there was a time when you were alive to sin. Can you think of that time? What does that mean, being dead in sin? What what, what is that talking about? If you look throughout the Bible, especially throughout the New Testament, it speaks of the unregenerate state as a state of death. It calls it blindness, being dead in sin, being enslaved to sin, being under the dominion and power of Satan and sin. That's the state that he's talking about right now. It refers to um, the enslavement or the bondage of our will as we are born. As we're born into this world, we receive an Adamic will. We receive a will like that of Adam after he fell and before he was converted. We receive an enslaved will, one that is enslaved to sin, and all of our desires are corrupted. All of our desires are corrupted. Can you think of that time in your life when you were enslaved to sin, when you were under the dominion and the power of sin? Notice verse 24. He came so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Conversion, conversion describes specifically, when we're talking theologically, conversion is repentance and faith. That's what conversion is. But when I'm speaking of conversion, I'm talking about the moment and all of its attendant circumstances when we repent and believe in the gospel. When you are converted, God kills you and he raises you from the dead. And he makes you his. That's what Jesus did. He says, you are no longer to be under the dominion and power of sin and Satan. You're mine. I bought you. And I'm making good on my purchase. You're mine. And he changes you. He transforms you. He makes you a new creature. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, in Romans chapter 6, and other places. That's what happens at conversion. So can you think? Can you think of a time? Can you think of a time? When you were enslaved to sin, when you were dead in sin. Let me read this to you. This is for a specific person that answers that question in a certain way. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. What I'm saying to you is this. If you can't think of a time in your life when you formerly were blind and hardened in your sin, when you were dead in your sin, you say, I see. Jesus says to you, you are blind. There is a a person who can truly say, I do see, but that's because they know they were blind before and God made them see. Do you understand? Conversion is not something that happens at your birth. You were dead in sin and God made you alive together with Christ. You're under the dominion and the power of sin. So, not only um, is there this implicit statement that our past life can be characterized by the uh, enslavement to sin. But I also want to discuss the logical relationship between Christ's sin-bearing and our newness of life. Because notice it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that 
having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. So Jesus' purpose, in other words, his intention, his intention in taking upon the form of a servant, in dying on the cross, in raising from the dead, his intention in bearing your sins was so that you might live. That was his intention. What is the logical relationship between those things? Well, the Bible um, describes what happens at conversion as a, 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 an in-time union with Jesus Christ. What happens is the Holy Spirit, God sends, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit um, to make you a new creature, and he unites you to himself in doing so. Your death to sin is by virtue of Jesus' death with respect to sin on the cross. Your newness of life is by virtue of his newness to life at his resurrection. That's the logical relation that I'm, that I'm showing you. It is an absolute necessity that those for whom Jesus died, they would receive newness of life in time. Do you see that logical relationship? It was the intention of Jesus Christ that in bearing your sins, you might live. Do you see? Does Jesus ever fail in his intentions? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, let's look at, lastly, the result of Christ bearing our sins. It says, by his wounds, you were healed. What is the vehicle of your healing? What is that healing referring to? What is that healing referring to? It's referring to your salvation. It's a figurative way of referring to your salvation. If you are in Christ, you have been healed. You had a wound, and you have been healed. What was the vehicle? What was the instrument of your healing? It was his wound. It was his wound. There is a relationship that cannot be um, divided it is the relationship between Jesus Christ's wound and your healing. Does that not stir up gratitude and thankfulness in your heart to God for showing such immeasurable mercy and kindness toward you? There is somebody. There, there, is, there is somebody who will bear his own sins. And there is somebody who will have someone bear his sins on his behalf. The Christian, the one who is saved, has been saved from his wound which he brought upon himself. Jesus was wounded that you might be healed. Why, why are we talking about this? Because this is the meaning of life. Because this is why we're here. Because this is the source and the basis and the foundation of our salvation. Sin, wrath, judgment are imperative, crucial, critical to discuss and to consider, to meditate upon. Why? Because Jesus died. That's why. We need to talk about it. God takes it seriously. We should take it very seriously. Obedience should be a, 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 a very common thing that we meditate upon because we're thankful not because we're trying to earn something before him, but because Jesus died. Aren't you thankful that he died? Don't you want to obey him? Don't you love him so much for what he's done for you? Was it for some worth in you that he died? 
No. No. You, you are the bad guy. God is the good guy. Where do we belong? We belong in hell. By virtue, because of what we have done. That's where we belong. But the Christian, the Christian doesn't live a despondent life. A life of despondency and hopelessness. The Christian is so joyful, filled with joy. Because what Jesus did was a voluntary act. And because we have riches beyond measure. There is nothing in this life that can compare to the blessings associated with the death and resurrection of our Savior. Nothing in this life that can compare with those things. So when we lose family, when we lose children, when we lose parents, when we lose jobs, when we lose our inheritance, when we lose our time, when we lose our comfort and our pleasure, we are joyful. We should be a people characterized by joy because our hope, our love, our pleasure are not fixated on the things of this world. We are a people who should be characterized by those who look up and who see the one interceding on their behalf. I have nothing to complain about. Jesus died for me. All my sins have been forgiven. I have an inheritance waiting for me. The consummated new heavens and new earth, fellowship with God's people, feasting with God's people, I'm not going to be one of those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth because they see the sons of the kingdom while they themselves are being cast out. I'm not one of those people. I have so much to be um, thankful to God for. It's It's not by my own works. What does God require of you? What does God require of you to be saved? What must I do to be saved? If you have said to yourself, I've never been blind, but you realize that the Bible says, Yes, you have. And you think, okay, well then how can I see? That is a good response. How can you see? You must repent and believe in the gospel. You must turn from your sin. Repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a sinner, out of a a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred over his sin turn from it to God with a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, knowing that he didn't save himself. God has already done everything necessary for his salvation. That's what repentance is. What is faith? Faith is a work of extrospection. I'm looking outside of myself for salvation. I am placing all of my hope, all of my confidence, all of my trust in the work of another to be saved, Jesus Christ. Those two things are necessary, absolutely critical if you are going to be saved. And you will find that they're not a work that you stir up in yourself. It is a work that is purchased, get this, by Jesus' death and resurrection and applied to you when the Holy Spirit comes and he makes you a new creature. He himself is the one who stirs and works repentance and faith with you. And repentance and faith, these evangelical graces, these proper responses to the gospel, they are blessings that are afforded to us by virtue of the new covenant. In other words, by Jesus' mediation. He purchased our repentance and faith, and he applies it to us. Yet it's your responsibility. You can't say on the last day, I don't belong here. You should have made me different. This is your fault. No, he is going to punish you for your individual sins. 
He's going to punish you for your individual sins, and only you are responsible for those. God is not unjust. The last thing, the very last thing that I want to consider is very simply this. It's an implication from this text and from the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. If we are healed by his wounds, if that is the result of him bearing our sins, if Christ's intention in bearing our sins is so that we might live to righteousness, if he was punished for what I have done, how can I go to hell? What I'm, what I'm asking you is I'm asking you to think critically about the nature of the atonement. This is the doctrine of limited atonement or definite atonement or particular redemption. Jesus Christ, and, 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 and this is imperative that you think of it this way, because it will make you think rightly about your own salvation. That's why it's necessary. That's why we got to talk about this. If you, think, if you think that Jesus can die for somebody and that person can then go to hell, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand the cross. You don't understand what Jesus did. He procured. He purchased. He accomplished your justification by what he did in his death and resurrection. It says he died for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. I am saved because of what he did not because of what I did by an act of my own free will. He saved me. I didn't save me. I didn't save me. So the implication is this. If there are those for whom Jesus Christ did not bear their sins, who's going to bear their sins for them? No one. And there are those who are suffering at this very moment, who do not have an intercessor, who do not have a mediator. You cannot rely upon Jesus' death if you died in your sins. That is the last providential evidence that is indisputable of the fact that Jesus never came to save you. While you are still living while you are still living, um, that last piece of evidence has not yet fallen into place. And what you need to rely upon is the fact that if you turn from your sins and you trust in him, you will find him to be a perfectly sufficient savior, even for you and all of your wickedness. You will find him to be a sufficient savior. And you won't have to bear your own sins for an eternity. I said that um, this evening our subject under consideration is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven or hell. You may have been here for a long time. I'm encouraging you. I'm exhorting you. Don't forget about these things. We think about a lot of things here. We talk about a lot of things here. These are the meat and potatoes. We need to be thinking about these things. This more than anything else, is what will stir you up to obedience. You say, you say, why? Why am I not obeying the way that I want to? I'm trying so hard. I'm putting up so many fences. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I don't want to do it. I don't want to displease him. My friend, my friend, you're not placing the emphasis 
on the proper subject. Jesus died. He rose again. Your salvation is accomplished. And he will see to it that the work that he began in you, he will bring to completion. When you look at Jesus Christ, not only his person, yes, his person, absolutely, yes, his person, but also his work. When you look upon Jesus Christ in his penal substitutionary atonement, in his propitiatory sacrifice, when you think and meditate upon these things, you will find yourself imbued with grace beyond the measure of your own strength to obey God. He infuses you with grace when you place your faith in him, when you think upon him, when you look to him. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another when we behold that image as in a mirror. That's the scripture. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I think it was even um, quoted this morning. When you look upon Jesus Christ, you will be conformed into his image. Stop looking at yourself. Stop. Only look at yourself long enough to realize that it's not a subject worthy of looking at. When you come to that uh, uh, conviction that there ain't nothing here that you can find hope in, that's when you can look in another and you can find all joy, all hope. You have a purpose. You have a meaning. And it is found in Jesus Christ. And you have a home in heaven with him if you turn from your sins and you trust in him. Let's, uh, let's pray. Oh God, we are immensely grateful for your immeasurable grace. We do not deserve what Jesus Christ came to do. These are foundational things. These are simple things. But these are things that seem to be easier to forget than most things. We pray that we would not forget what he did for us. That we would not lose sight of the forest for the trees. We pray that we would remember in all of the um, topics and subjects that we study at this church, we pray that they would always find their head and their center and their focal point in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what he did on our behalf and who he is. We pray this by the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.